I am very excited to share this with you this week. In fact, it's been uh, one of those sections of Scripture ever since we decided to start our series in John's Gospel that I've been looking forward to the most. Uh, I know I mentioned to you before, Natalie and I walked through this gospel with our youth at our former church in Baton Rouge. And while we were going through that, I mean, the gospel as a whole, I hope as you've seen, uh, is very transformational as you get to know uh, who Jesus is and you get to hear some of the things he says. And and especially in this section of scripture that we're in right now, uh, where he's preparing his disciples, so he's communicating comfort, he's communicating love, uh, this specific passage of Scripture was, was very transformational for our hearts and also for the way we viewed ministry. Uh, not just ministry to others, but also our own personal growth. I've been praying all week that the truths that are communicated in this passage in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 15, uh, I've been, been praying that I would communicate them clearly because this is so important to me, and I can get you know, really fired up and run off on a, a side tangent or something, but I just really have been praying that the Holy Spirit, as we learned last week, the Holy Spirit's role is to teach us in all truth. So that's what I've been praying for in preparation for this. As a reminder, we are in the middle of what is known as Jesus's farewell discourse. From chapters 13 to 17, this is all one conversation where Jesus is spending that night and early morning with his disciples, preparing them for the time that he's going to depart from them. And that's where we are right now. This week, we, we look at a gardening allegory, an illustration that Jesus will use to communicate a greater spiritual truth about abiding in him. He's going to talk a lot about abiding in the vine. The structure we will follow this morning is first considering the vine and the vine dresser, and then we will consider the two types of branches, those branches that abide, where we will spend most of our time, and the branches that don't abide in the vine. Because there's so much to cover, and I want to make sure that I don't keep you here too long past lunch, as Blake would probably do. Let's get started in John chapter 15. And I'll start with the vine and the vine dresser in verses 1 through 2. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. He starts off, by saying, I am the true vine. This is the seventh and last I am statement in John's gospel. For those of you who have been with us, as we've been coming across these seven statements, we've been pointing them out to you. As Jesus takes something that would be readily understandable to his immediate audience to communicate a greater spiritual truth about how he is better than whatever that symbol is. And I thought it would be good for us to, since we are at the last one, to Go through a reminder and see what Jesus has said. We won't go through it in detail, but I think it would be helpful, especially with where we're going with the application. Here, Jesus is communicating who he is. That's important for us to understand. So go to John 6, 35, and then we'll work our way through the gospel of John as we come across these I am statements. The first one, 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. So just as manna was provided for Israel in the wilderness, coming down from heaven and providing them with nutrition so that they could live, Jesus is saying, I am better. I am the bread of life that has come down from heaven from whom you get all spiritual life. Go to John chapter 8, verse 12. This is the second I am statement. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you remember, this was at the Feast of Booths. It's one of the events that took place every night in the temple. They would light up these huge candelabra-type lights, and it would light up. Historians would say that it was so bright, it would light up the entire city. And that was done to to, uh, recognize and celebrate what what God had done for, for Israel in the wilderness as he led them with his presence in a pillar of fire by night. And if you remember, it was in the middle of that ceremony where they're celebrating, thinking back to what God has done in the history of Israel, that Jesus stood up and declared, I am the light of the world. That I am the one who will lead you through the wilderness. Go to John chapter 10, verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Skip down to verse 9. He says the same thing. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the gateway into the fold of God's family. John 10, verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Continuing with that I am statement in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. The good shepherd goes before his sheep to protect them. He cares for his sheep. He he provides them with food, willing to lay down his life for the sake of the sheep. He calls his sheep by name, and that, that indicates that there's an intimate relationship, that he knows his sheep. John 11, 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus claims that divine power to conquer death. This was right after the whole deal with, right in the middle of the whole deal with Lazarus. And so he says, I am the resurrection and the life just before he verifies that claim by raising Lazarus from the dead. The sixth one occurred in John chapter 14, which we just finished last week. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there in that I am statement, Jesus proclaims that he alone is the way to God, that it is exclusive through him because he alone is the truth about God and he alone possesses the life of God. And that brings us to John chapter 15, verse 1, this seventh and last I am statement. He says, I am the true vine. Now that word true is a comparable term, right? I mean, what he's doing here is he's saying, obviously there's, it's implied that there is a false vine. He says, I am the true vine. 
That word true means it's a perfection of that which is imperfect or a genuine version of that which is counterfeit. The question we need to answer then is, since Jesus is the true vine, well, what's the false vine? You look in the Old Testament, Israel is often referred to as a vine. And if you were connected to this vine, this vine of Israel, you receive the covenant promises of redemption. It was through this vine that the covenant promises flowed. But Israel proved to be a fruitless, lifeless, unfaithful vine, a wild vine. In Jeremiah 2.21, they are referred to as both the choice vine and a wild vine. Jeremiah 2.21, this is the prophet speaking the word of God as the Lord speaks, yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? To support this contrast, I'd like for you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. And I want you to see the great care that the Father displayed in caring for his vineyard. Isaiah 5, starting in verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. And then it goes on to clarify, who is this vineyard? For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. What we see here is the great care that God provided for his vineyard Israel. I mean, what did he do? He, he planted choice vines on a very fertile hill. He dug and he, and he cleared it of stones. He built a watchtower so that they could protect it. He had a wall of protection around it, and he watered it. He cared for it. And I don't want you to miss the intensity of of that question where he says, what more was there to do that I have not done? I have done everything that is needed to be done so that you would bear good fruit. And what have you done? Well, we know that the history of Israel, what they've done is they've chased after other gods. And they've started producing wild grapes, bad fruit. 
And so Jesus, God, the Father, turns them over to their own destruction with the intent of one day. It's, it's interesting. As we're going through the Old Testament right now and through our reading plan, one of the things I keep seeing is God, he, 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 he is just, and he punishes the nation of Israel, but then there's always like this little bit of grace and mercy that he still extends towards them. It's still there. Because I've made promises to your father David, right? So I'm not going to completely destroy you because, because I have made a promise, and it's a covenant promise that I'm going to keep. However, you in your lifetime, you're going to experience the punishment, the discipline. So he says, what more was there to do? So he removed the hedge of protection. He let his vineyard be consumed, destroyed. He provided no care in terms of pruning or hoeing or tilling the soil. Even prevents the rain from raining upon it. In contrast to this vine, this wild, false vine of Israel, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And it is through this union with him, not with Israel, that God's blessing of redemption will flow. It's a really beautiful thing. Jesus is saying, I have replaced Israel as the focus of God's plan of salvation. That it is through me now, not Israel, that salvation will be found. Because it is through faith alone in Jesus Christ as the Son of God alone that becomes the decisive characteristic of membership in God's family. Jesus said, I am the true vine. And then he says, and my father is the vine dresser. That word is a little weird, but basically what that means is he's the gardener. He's the farmer. He's the one that's responsible for caring for the vine and growing it. As we saw in Isaiah, what does he do? He prepares the soil. He tills it. He hoes it. He plants the seeds. He fertilizes the soil. He waters the plants. And he does so for what purpose? What did he say? I looked for you to yield grapes. I'm looking for you to yield fruit. And the emphasis here is on the, the father's care for the vine and the branches as the vine dresser. And we're going to get a little bit more into this, but he gives us two other responsibilities of the vine dresser in verse 2. What are they? He removes the branches that don't bear fruit, and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit. And the reason he prunes them, and this is going to be important for us to remember, is so that they would bear more fruit. So now that we've discussed the vine and the vine dresser, and we've kind of set up this illustration, let's, let's go into the abiding branches. I'm going to read the whole passage there that's going to refer to them. We're going to skip verse 6, because that's specific to the non-abiding branches. But starting in John 15, I'll pick back up in verse 2. He says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit... He takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Go down to verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus begins his teaching on the abiding branches by declaring to the disciples that they are already clean. And if you recall, didn't he do that already with Peter? Go back to chapter 13. Jesus is getting ready to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says, no, you're not going to do this, Jesus. He says, no, I have to, Peter. And Peter says, okay, well then give me a full bath. And what does Jesus say? You're already clean. I just need to wash your feet. You're clean because you've trusted in who I say that I am, that you've seen the fullness of my glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, John 1.14. They saw it and they believed it. They were clean. In verse 4, Jesus makes an important statement of spiritual truth. He says, abide in me and I in you. That word abide, it it's one that I only heard of in context growing up, that you were to abide according to your parents' wishes, that you were to be obedient, you were to remain there, and that's kind of the indication is that you are to remain or to stay. Jesus is saying you're already clean because you are already in me. Abide in me. Stay there. Remain in me. And this relationship he is describing with branches that remain in the vine is so important. It's like this interconnectivity that we have with Jesus. For those of us who have trusted in him for salvation, we are connected with him, that we, we are in him. And so what he's telling us is to abide in him. He says we are completely dependent upon him. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We are dependent upon the vine as the branches. We are dependent upon the vine for life, for nourishment. And what he's doing is he's taking that illustration, one that they would understand, and saying, you're the branch and I'm the vine. You cannot produce fruit unless you are abiding in me. verse 5, he says, without abiding in the vine, the branch will not bear fruit. Because you see, the branches, they don't have any source of life within themselves. They're completely dependent upon the vine to bring them that life. And so we are incapable of bearing fruit on our own, but only when we abide in Christ. And when we speak of fruit, I think it's helpful for us to, to use Scripture to define that for us. Because I think sometimes we think of fruit as, I mean, this is very tempting in church ministry. Fruit would be more people come through our doors. That if we're doing a work, oh, we're bearing much fruit, people are coming to our church services. You don't see that in Scripture. 
That's not what fruit is. So let's look at what fruit is defined by Scripture. Go to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. A lot of you know this. I might teach you a little something different this morning. At least point something out to you. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. A lot, of this, a lot of us know this as the fruits of the Spirit. But as we read this, I want you to pay attention. Fruit of the Spirit. It's a singular word. This is something I noticed while I was studying this week. It was, I got so confused. I was like, wait, I thought it was always like peace, patience, kindness. Those are all different fruits of the Spirit. But what happens is, for those of us who are producing this fruit, it's not like you get to pick which ones you're going to produce. These are fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So you see these things that are considered fruit of the Spirit. Turn to Hebrews. I've got you flipping a lot of pages this week, I know. Hebrews. I had, I had Sean put a lot of these in here. So Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. This is one that I love. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. I love that. You know why? What does it say there? Through him first. And when he's saying him, if you go back to verse 12, we're talking about Jesus. Through Jesus. Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. The praise from our lips is fruit. When we go into our our time of reflection later on, where our worship team will lead us in a couple more songs as reflecting on what we've seen in Scripture that is the fruit from our lips that is produced only by us abiding in Christ. Go back now. I've got you flipping all over the New Testament. Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verse 28. When therefore I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Now, I'm reading from the ESV. And if you're in the ESV, you may have a little note at the bottom. Because what the Greek literal uh, word there is for that phrase, when he says, when I have delivered to them what has been collected, it is what sealed to them this fruit. The fruit was what he was delivering on behalf of this church. So what is that? The selfless sacrifice that we would display, that is fruit. Only through Christ can we even understand what that is. When we look to Jesus, who had everything, who was in eternal glory with his Father, where he gave that up for us, that self-sacrifice, that's fruit that only comes from abiding in Christ. In Matthew 3, 8, We see that honorable behavior is considered fruit, according to Scripture. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
You keep in repentance. You, you display this honorable behavior that is fruit. I feel like I'm making you turn a lot, so I'm going to read you the last two. Philippians chapter 1, verse 11 talks about the fruit of righteousness. And then in John, what we've already seen in this gospel in John chapter 4, I'll read this to you. You don't have to turn there. You can go back to John 15. But John chapter 4, verses 36 through 41, if you remember, this is Jesus. He's been at the well with the woman from Samaria. This is the woman that had many male friends, right? And Jesus knew everything about her, and he revealed those things to her without her telling him anything. And then he reveals to her who he is. And what does she do? She runs off back into town, and she starts telling the men of the town, hey, I think you need to come check this guy out. I think he might be the Messiah. In the meantime, what's going on is the disciples, who Jesus had previously sent off to go get food, have now returned, and they come back and they say, Rabbi, eat. And we've talked about that. The reason they did that is because they were hungry. And as disciples, they could not eat until their rabbi had eaten. And so they're saying, Rabbi, eat. And Jesus says, lift your eyes from the physical because a harvest is coming. And they lift their eyes and they see the men coming from the town and they're coming out to him. And in John chapter 4, verses 36 through 41, Jesus says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. People who come to believe in Jesus Christ, it's fruit. Jesus is saying that unless we abide in him, we are incapable of producing any of these things in our lives. Let's walk through this a little bit. Let's pick out two of the two aspects of the, the fruit of the Spirit. Let's talk about love and joy. Some of you who were here very early on in the history of Sulphur Community Church, you may remember this. Love and joy. This is what we do, right? As Christians, we read that inscription. We say, okay, these are fruit of the Spirit. That's what I need to do. We're a bunch of doers, so we say, that's what I need to do. So I'm going to love this person. I'm going to love. Even when it's hard, I'm going to love them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to take a deep breath sometimes, and I'm going to love them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to love them so much. What happens when you're doing that? Do you have joy? You don't have joy. And let's say you realize now, I've, I've tried to love them so much that I've lost all my joy. Well, I'm going to focus on my joy now. I need to be joyful. Joyful. What are you doing? You're looking at yourself, right? You're considering yourself. And by every definition of love that we see in Scripture, you're not loving anybody when you're doing that. I mean, honestly, you probably weren't loving them when you thought you were because you're saying, i got to love them. But now you're saying, okay, i, I got to have joy. i got to have joy. i got to have joy. It's all about me, 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 and there's no self-sacrificial love. 
That's what we do. And then when we don't see these things happening in our lives, when we don't see the fruit, we become spiritually frustrated. And the reason we don't see the fruit is because we see the fruit out there, and that's what we're going after. We're going after love. We're going after joy instead of abiding in Christ. Because what it says, if you do not abide in Christ, you can do nothing. If you abide in Christ, then the fruit comes. But we're trying to disconnect ourselves from the, the source of life that we need to accomplish the fruit. I feel like as the church, we often do this. We're focusing on the wrong thing. We're focusing on the fruit rather than the abiding. It's almost like we think we're going to bring that to completion instead of he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. We just need to abide. And that's such a simple truth. But I'm telling you, when, when I find myself spiritually frustrated, I go back to this and I'm thinking, am, am I trying to do this or am I abiding in Christ? Am I trying to produce converts? Do I get spiritually frustrated whenever I'm preaching the gospel and people aren't responding? I can't do that. Only God could do that. But I need to abide in the vine. Do I get frustrated whenever I don't have a lot of joy? Because I'm trying to accomplish joy and it just never seems to happen? It's because I'm not abiding in the vine. And I, I just keep going back to that over and over again. It's, it's simple, but it's so profound. And I think it's problematic in the church that that's always what we're striving to do. Let me give you an additional application here. I want to point out what we experience as the abiding branches. It's that thing that we referred to earlier on called pruning. We saw in verse 2 that the Father is the vine dresser who prunes the branches that bear fruit. These are the abiding branches. And he does so so that they can bear even more fruit. So the Father's concern in this pruning process is to, to cut away things that would sap us of spiritual life. These are those wild shoots that come out of the branches, that they're stealing some of that energy, some of that life from the branch. And so the pruner will go in and he's going to cut those things back. But also the things that are producing fruit, and that's what, that's what really throws us, right? It's whenever we're producing fruit and things are going well. And then the pruner comes in and he cuts those things back. Why? See, God wants, we talked about this last week, God wants the most glory. And as we produce more and more fruit, then he gets more and more glory. He is more clearly seen. He is revealing himself more and more. And so as we're producing fruit, the pruner may come in and cut those things back. So that, not to punish you, but so that we would bear even more fruit. In verse 3, we saw him mention the word. You were clean already because of the word that you have believed. And that word is, is his pruning knife. When we spend time in Scripture, that word that is sharper than any two-edged sword pierces through our calloused and hardened hearts 
And it cuts those things off from us. And look, when you think about cutting, that's painful, right? You're being ripped apart. That's pruning. What happens is we start getting convicted over things that we once thought were okay. Jokes that we used to laugh at aren't as funny anymore. There are times in our lives where we are figuratively cut or snipped, losing things in our lives, whether it be relationships, material things, a job, good health. And it can even be things that aren't necessarily bad things. Sometimes it's anxiety over things that never bothered you before. Sometimes it's seasons of doubt that seem to linger on a little bit more than you were comfortable with. And it's then that we can be tempted to cry out to God, why? Why, God? Why are you cutting these things off of me? Why are you removing these things? I'm bearing fruit. And the answer is in verse 2. The Father prunes the branches not to punish them, but it's so that they may bear even more fruit. And even though it hurts like crazy sometimes, it's ultimately for our good. He does this so that we may bear more fruit, that we would be more healthy. And when that happens, as we bear more fruit, as Jesus indicates in verse 8, the Father is glorified. And that's why we exist, right? We talk about that often here. So for Community Church, why do you exist? We exist to make much of God. That means to glorify God. We want to make sure that he is seen as clearly as possible. Where? In our neighborhoods and to the nations. And how do we do that? By reflecting Jesus Christ, by abiding in the vine. Going back to John 15, in verse 7, he gives three conditions with a resulting outcome. First one, if you abide in me. Second condition, my words abide in you. Third condition, ask. Those three conditions are met. Whatever you wish will be done for you. Now, this is not some genie in a lamp type deal. Uh, Blake Blake talked about that a few weeks ago in chapter 14. We've already seen that language used. This isn't like you get to, okay, if I do those things, then I get to ask Jesus, I get to ask God for whatever I want, and I'm going to get that done for me. But what happens is when those conditions are met, your wishes transform. When you are abiding in the vine, abiding in Christ, remaining in him, and his words remain in you, then what are you going to wish for? You're going to wish for those things that he wants, that he desires, not your selfish desires. It's opposite of what we see in James chapter 4. If you're familiar with James 4, you know exactly what this is going to say. James 4 says, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive. Well, wait a minute. I thought that whatever I asked would be done for me. James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So it's not that genie in a lamp. And I can ask whatever I want for my own personal desire. But when you abide in the vine and his word abides in you, you ask, and it's implied there as we've seen in chapter 14, you ask in his name, it will be done. Now, it may not be done immediately, 
but it will be done. John chapter 15, verse 9 through the rest of our passage here, 15. As I've gone through this, this is the, my second time to, well, third time technically, but second time to walk through this gospel and teach this. I told Trent yesterday that it's inexhaustible, this section of scripture. I mean, I could spend forever and still learn more and more. And this time it was completely new for me as I walked through this section of scripture. What I saw here was the effect of love. In verse 9, Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That struck me this week. Listen to that again. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. I mean, we are talking about the eternal, perfect love that the Father has for his Son. With that same love, Jesus telling these 11 disciples, you put yourself in that room. He's getting ready to leave them. They know that. They're going to feel abandoned. They're starting to feel hopeless. And he's been trying to encourage them, giving them hope, giving them a future joy. And he says, with that love, I love you. And the same is true for us. As the Father has loved the Son, so Jesus loves you. That's nuts. There is no greater love than that. In verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I'm going to spend a good portion of time here because I'm going to go back to this idea of that fruit that we're trying to accomplish on our own. I think that idea right here is where all of us probably most commonly fall. We read that and it says, if you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love. Does that sound backwards to the gospel to you? If you do this, then you will abide in my love. What has Jesus already said? Abide in me because apart from me you can do nothing. Why would he follow that up with saying, so go do this so that you can abide in my love? Abide in my love. Abide in me because you can do nothing apart from me. Obey my commandments so that you can abide in my love. See, what's really going on there is the opposite. And Blake kind of talked about this a, a few weeks ago. Love me, abide in my love, and then you will obey my commandments. It's this same idea, right? We want to be obedient people. And we want to prove our love for the Father. We want to prove our devotion to Jesus Christ. And so we say, okay, I've got to be obedient to his word. What happens? If you are a Christian, you're probably all thinking the same thing right now. What happens when you focus on obedience only? You disobey. You're disobedient. And when you keep trying over a period of time, okay, I'm going to get back on my feet and I'm going to go after it again. And then you fall down again. 
You get back on your feet. Okay, I'm going to do it this time. Don't you get tired of that? Of going through that cycle all the time? The false mindset there is that I have to prove my love by being obedient. The correct mindset is that if I grow in my love for Christ, then I will be obedient. I will obey out of that love. I think that's why so many of the people in the church, they get burned out serving because they're looking to that obedience, like I'm supposed to serve my neighbor, I'm supposed to count them as, as better than myself, so I'm gonna go do that thing, but you're not doing it out of the love that you have for Christ. You're not doing it from what you've experienced from Christ. You're just saying, okay, I'm gonna go do that external religious thing that I'm supposed to do. I think that's why so many Christians feel insecure about their faith. I'm supposed to display faith, and so I'm gonna go do that thing. But it's not coming from the love of Christ. It's not coming out of that, that what you've experienced, that where, when your eyes were open to that foolish gospel that it was, and you responded in faith. It's not coming from there. It's just saying, I've got to go do this thing. I think that's why many Christians struggle with anxiety and fear and doubt, because when you go through that cycle over and over again, you start to wonder, is this thing real? Does God hear me? Is he there? What's going on? And the whole time, it's been you trying to do things outside of the vine. We forget about our first love, Jesus Christ, the one that we fell in love with when the Holy Spirit opened up our eyes, opened up our minds and our hearts to believe that gospel. We forget that. Instead, we focus on doing something to prove not just to God, but also to ourselves that we love Jesus. So how should we adjust our mindset and practice? Instead of doing things to prove our love and devotion to Christ, let's get to know him better. And I say that, with, I didn't even have any hesitation, but the thought was, I just made a bunch of announcements this morning about a bunch of things different that are going on, and we're going to need people to serve in those, those areas, right? So if I say, okay, don't focus on serving anymore. You need to focus, focus on the love of, of Christ. You need to go learn more about him so you fall more in love with him. Who's going to show up at the back-to-school bash? That's not a concern of mine. You want to know why? Because I've seen it. I've experienced it in my own life, and I've seen it in the life of a church. When you focus on loving Jesus and learning more and more about him so that you can fall more in love with him, all that stuff, that's the fruit. And it's going to come. And when it comes, you're going to have more joy in doing it. So let's get to know him better, and let's fill our lives with things that move our hearts to love him. And let's cut out those things that rob us of our love for Jesus. This is one of those things that Matt Chandler out of Dallas talks about a lot, right? You'll hear him, he has this, I don't know if he coined it, but I mean, he says this a lot. What stirs your affections for Jesus? And what is that for you? Consider that. We're all wired differently. 
What moves you to love Jesus? What stirs your affections? For me, drinking coffee with my wife is one of those things. That's a weird thing maybe to some of you, but for me, every Saturday morning, when, we, when we're going throughout the week, I wake up earlier than her, and it's not, because, it's not a prideful thing, oh, I wake up early in the morning. But I wake up earlier than, earlier than her because I've got more responsibility at work that requires me, if I can get to work earlier before people start calling me and emailing me all day long, that I can get some stuff done. It's not to say she doesn't have that same responsibility. Her responsibility requires her to get much-needed rest. She, she sits in front of, of teens all day, and she's counseling, and she's talking. She needs that rest. But I get up earlier than her, and then I, most of the time, by the time I leave, she's still in bed. But Saturday mornings, I still get up earlier than her, but it's just, I hate it. I hate that I get up early than her on Saturday mornings. But I get up early, and I fix my breakfast, and around 8, 8.30, that's right, she sleeps till about 9, 8, 8.30, I start dripping a cup of coffee, or well, a pot of coffee, and it's Blue Mountain. It's Jamaican coffee. And the reason that that's so special to us, and maybe not to all of you, is because when we went on our honeymoon, we went to Jamaica. And I remember when we first took that sip of that smooth Blue Mountain coffee. And that when, I, when we do that together, it takes me back to past my affection for her. But thinking on the affection, that first time I experienced, oh my gosh, I'm a husband. And I am to love my wife like Christ has loved me. Saturday morning coffee with, with Natalie stirs my affections for Jesus. Mountains. No surprise to many of you. Mountains stir my affection for Jesus. Running rivers, if you combine a running river with a mountain, <laughs> I see the, the creativity, the, the power of God on display. I love that. Sitting around a fire with some, some close brothers in Christ discussing spiritual things, that stirs my affections for Jesus. What stirs your affections? It's probably one of those good community group questions that, you, that we have. You might want to talk about that this week. Talk about it with your spouses. Talk about it with your friends. Consider what you might need to fill more into your life, and then consider what robs you of that love. See, for a while in my life, I was way too emotionally involved with LSU football. I mean, it was silly. And that's not to say that I'm, I'm not a fan anymore. I still love football. I still love to watch LSU football. I still will get excited when things happen. But I'm okay with missing a few games every once in a while. It's, it's okay. I, don't, I fight that temptation to feel like these boys playing a game control my life. I have to fight it sometimes. Sometimes I have to be, you know what? I'm not going to watch the game. Because sometimes that robs me of my love for Jesus. Instead, I'm so focused on myself. 
as Christians, we should focus on loving Jesus more. And when we do that, we will abide in him and we will find ourselves following him in obedience. And it is then, only then, when we abide in him, that we will obey out of love. In verse 11, when we do that, it says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. When you obey the commandments as a display of your love, when it's coming out of that love that you have for Jesus, your joy will be full. And that's one of the things I'm concerned with with, with some in our churches. I worry that you're, you've lost your joy. And it's because of those things where you've committed your life to doing something that started with a good intention, that started coming out of this feeling of love that you had for Jesus, and you find yourself down the road months, possibly years later, and you, you've lost your joy. When you abide in the vine and you obey out of the love that you have for Jesus, you will have joy and your joy will be full. You'll have the joy of Christ. So what is the command that we are to obey? Verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. Isn't that something? Loving Jesus leads to obedience to love others like Jesus has loved you. Did you catch the progression there if you go back to verse 9? The Father loves his Son. The Son loves man the same with that same love that the Father has for his Son. And then he says, love others as I have loved you. That perfect chain of love from the Father all the way down to you sitting in this room right now. So love one another in the same way that the Father loves the Son, in the same way that Jesus loves you. We are to love one another. That's perfect and incomparable love. When, when you think about it, what does that look like? I can't help but point you to the cross because that's what Jesus did. In verse 13, he, he goes straight to the cross, and, and I don't know if it was because this is that night, he's, he's getting ready, uh, Judas has already gone out to betray him, and he has a little bit of time left with the disciples, or if he just said, you know what, I'm going to go to the greatest extreme to define what this love looks like, but that's where he, he, he cuts straight to the chase, and he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. It's the greatest definition of love that we could ever possibly think of, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus is the greatest display of that definition. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He laid down his life for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this idea of love was something that John would remember throughout the rest of his life. And he writes about it in 1 John. 
his first epistle. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, for by this we know love. By this we know the definition of love. This is what it looks like, that he laid down his life for us. And he follows that up with, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What does that mean? To lay down our lives for the, for the brothers. In verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How do we lay down our lives for our friends? How do we display the love of Jesus? How do we love one another as he has loved us? We give of ourselves. Self-sacrifice. Again, I'm careful to point you back to this because I know us. We immediately think, okay, what can I give up? What can I give up? Abide in the vine first. Remain in Christ. Don't go running after, okay, I gotta give something up. Abide in Christ. Everything on the table. Jesus, what would you have me give up? What needs are out there? How can I help? How can I love others as you have loved me? And it may be helping out with a couple bucks. Maybe a hot meal. Maybe helping someone move. It may entail more than that. Might mean opening up your home to a friend. Might mean giving up a night of Netflix. Going and spending time with a friend who just needs somebody to listen to. Maybe we swallow our pride and we pursue reconciliation with a brother and sister in Christ who we don't necessarily like that much right now or somebody who hurt us. Maybe we go out of our way to find out what needs actually exist instead of waiting on them to come to us. I can't give you a perfect application for this, but I can point you to the perfect example of it. Jesus laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. And by obeying this command to love one another, we reveal that we are friends of Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? And he calls us friend. I remember one chapel service at Louisiana College. We sang that song, I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. Okay, I'm very careful. Natalie hates it when I say, when I sing from this pulpit anyway. Um, I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. And that was at a weird phase in my life, a terrible phase, where I was so critical of every song lyric that we ever sang. I'm a little bit better now, Phil. But I was very critical. I mean, you could have gone up there and sang, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and I would have walked away saying, man-centered theology. Jesus loves me. So I remember we sang that song, and I made a snide remark to Natalie. Uh, and being the Bible scholar that she was, and uh, uh, what do y'all, you young, young ladies call her? Savage. Being savage, she <laughs> pointed me to Scripture and said, no, that's actually in Scripture. And I just remember looking at it and thinking, that's got to be wrong. There's no way 
that he would call us friend. Because, see, I was, I was comfortable with Jesus being my Savior, right? That means he went to the cross on my behalf, that he was the substitution for me, and he took on what I deserved. I'm comfortable there. And I'm comfortable with calling him Lord because out of that, I will commit myself to serving him. But friend, that's a lot closer, right? That implies that there's a relationship. And when there's a relationship, that means that he knows me. And there's things that I can't hide. I just remember that blew my mind that he would call me friend. But Jesus told the disciples, nope, you're no longer servants. You're no longer this distant where I'm Lord and Savior, but you're my friends. Because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. A servant just does what the master says, but I call you friends and I have revealed all that the master intends to do to you. The same is true for us. We have the master's plan. He's revealed it to us. He's laid down his life for his friends. There's no greater love than that. So Christian, are you spiritually frustrated? And if so, is it because you've been trying to accomplish the fruit on your own? You've been trying to produce joy. You've been trying to produce patience without abiding in Christ. If you abide in him, the fruit will be produced. That's the only way the fruit will come. Are you tired of feeling doubt and insecurity because of your struggles and obedience? Tired of going through that cycle over and over again? Focus rather on loving Jesus. Fill your lives with things that, to quote Chandler, stir your affections for him. And remove those things or people that rob you of that love. And out of that love, you will find yourself in obedience. And in that obedience, your joy will be complete. It will be restored. Are you being pruned right now? Are you hurting? Because the father, the vine dresser, is ripping you apart. He is cutting back. Whether it be something that was sapping the spiritual life from you or whether it was something that was producing fruit and he's cutting it back to produce more. Is that where you are? Trust and believe that he is actually showing you great care in that process. And that it will lead to more fruit. That is actually for your good that he does that. That you will be healthy. In verse 6, we see the other type of branch, the non-abiding branches. Jesus said, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you've not trusted in Jesus for salvation, if you have not seen him as the, the Son of God who came to earth, was tempted in every way that we are, yet remained without sin, and went to the cross to put an end to the eternal judgment that we deserve from our Father, from our Creator, 
so that we would be reconciled to him. If you have not done that, look at this warning. What does it say that those branches will, will experience? They'll be cut off. They'll be thrown away. They will wither and die. And when that happens, they will be gathered up, thrown into the fire. They will be incinerated. John wrote this gospel so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would find life in his name. Would you believe in him this morning? Father, we come to you confessing our our failure to abide in your son, Jesus. And trying to produce fruit through our own efforts. Forgive us. Forgive us for forgetting our first love, Jesus, and, and trying to be obedient without resting and abiding, remaining in that love. And forgive us when we don't love one another as you have loved us. Father, I pray from the, by the power of your spirit through this word that you have instructed us with this morning that, that you would bring restoration of joy to many. That for those of us who are tired of going through this cycle as a result of depending on ourselves, that you would produce love, joy, peace, and patience, and kindness, that you, would, that you would bring souls to salvation, that you would produce in us the fruit of righteousness, that we would be able to keep in repentance, all because we are abiding in the true vine, through whom all spiritual blessings flow. Father, as we go into this time of worship, we pray that the fruit of our lips, these songs of praise, would honor you. They would, they would please you. As they come from a place not of desiring to accomplish some external religious act, but out of this place of love that we've experienced from your son, Jesus. As we sang this morning, Jesus, you are worthy of all of our affection. And so we sing these songs of praise to you as fruit that's produced from abiding in your love. Would you stir our affections for your son, Jesus, this morning, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.